Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Madison, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMadison.com. I have a dear friend that tragically lost a co-worker in a really traumatic way where he was basically present with his friend when he passed. And as you can imagine, uh, that really marked him in a profound way for the rest of his life. And as a way to continually commemorate the life and the death of his friend, my buddy vowed to always take off work on the day of his death each year uh, to spend the day contemplating the life of his friend and spending it in prayer. And about six or seven years after that happened, he and I were hanging out one night and everything was completely normal and we were having a great time. And then he told me that the next day was that anniversary of his friend's death uh, and that he was taking it off to spend the day in prayer and meditating on the resurrection and the fragility of life. And he said, you know, I, I don't necessarily feel like I need to do it. This was years after the, it happened. Um, it hasn't been on my mind. It hasn't been consuming me, but I'm still going to do it. And so he did it, as he'd always done, and it helped him to enter back into, as Ecclesiastes says, to the house of mourning, and to think of the wisdom, and to celebrate the life of his friend and do those things. Today's a really special day. Not only is it the first Sunday of Advent, uh, which is why we have purple and other things, a choir, which is amazing. How about the choir? Yeah? Um, But the first Sunday of Advent is also the first Sunday of the entire church calendar. And in accordance with the historic Christian practice, it is the day we remind ourselves that Jesus is coming again to judge the living and the dead. We say we believe it every week in the creed. I don't know if you realize that you're saying, I actually do believe this is going to happen. But today is the day that we remember it. Uh, The gospel is always about Jesus talking about his second coming. And like my friend, we don't always feel like it. You might not feel like this week judgment has been on the forefront of your mind. Like, that's what I really want to, like, process. And yet it's so good for us to do so. We have it in our calendar for that purpose. If you're new to to Christianity or the church calendar, if you're like, what are you talking about when you're talking about the church calendar? The season of Advent is the season of expectation and anticipation. It's all about waiting for the coming of Jesus. So the word Advent comes from the Latin word, which means coming. And we remember how the people of Israel held on to the promises and the prophecies, like Isaiah says in the Old Testament, and awaited the coming of the Messiah, who came, born of Mary in Bethlehem, Emmanuel, God with us. But the season of Advent also has this amazing double entendre, because at the same time, we contemplate his first coming, we eagerly learn how to wait for his second coming. So that's Advent, remembering Jesus' first coming, in order to prepare for his second coming. And that's why the historic church calendar, like many good movies, begins with the ending. You know movies that begin with that final scene and then they cut and then you kind of go back and you wait all the way to go, get up to that final scene to see what happens. That's what we do in the church calendar. And so that's why on, you know, December 1st, while everybody else is listening to Christmas music and buying peppermint lattes, the church is contemplating the apocalypse. (laughs) And I know that sounds insane. Um, If you've been a part of church, that probably sounds crazy. If you're visiting and you're new to Christianity, it probably sounds extra crazy. But historically, it's not weird at all. This is what the church has always done. Advent, it's weird to us because Advent has been so hijacked by consumeristic Christmas. 
but it's not weird to the historic church. And this is where one of our values, if you're new to us, is we are rooted in the great tradition of the historic church. And that's so life-giving because if we weren't, we would probably just think Advent is all about warm fuzzies. But this is where the saints who are asleep in their tombs, who've gone before us, are calling out to us saying, you need to contemplate the second coming of Jesus, that he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Amen? So we do on Advent 1. That's why we do it. And it is good and right and joyful and always and everywhere to do so. I hope this is a part of our culture as a, as a church plant, by the way. In the future, I would love to get excited about thinking about Advent the way that the, the scriptures and the historic church always has. It's a culture thing we want to build. So the overall theme for the next four weeks is going to be about waiting, and the Psalms are going to be our primary text that we're looking into because the Psalms are like a waiting textbook. Uh, if you've ever read them, there's so much beautiful stuff in there about waiting. And today, like I said, the topic is waiting for judgment, which I kind of have joked. That's uh, like the most intense sermon title of all time, waiting for judgment, you know. I feel like you need one of the trailer movie guys, like, waiting for judgment, you know. But if you're freaked out by that, if you're like, oh my gosh, this is so intense, all of this is going to rise into good news, so hang in there with me. This is really beautiful, important stuff. Waiting for judgment. Two main questions I want to talk about this morning. Number one, what are we waiting for? In other words, what is Jesus' coming judgment? If we're waiting for it, what are we waiting for? Number two, what does it look like to wait for it? When we wait for Jesus to come and judge the living and the dead, we are waiting for Jesus to come and put things right. To wait for Jesus' second coming and his judgment is to wait for Jesus to come and put things right. I have two boys, and we have a basement, and my boys like to play in our basement. And sometimes Marissa and I will be upstairs, and then we'll hear, you know, a quarrel start to happen. And it gets louder and louder, and then the screams get louder and louder until I or Marissa have to go downstairs. And typically, they're both crying, and they're both red-faced, and they're both pointing at the other for some type of infraction, and I have no idea what's going on, and I'm like, what's going on here? It's my job, imperfectly, to try to enter into that basement situation and untangle it, to try to make things right. I love in our Isaiah reading, it says, the Lord will judge between nations and decide disputes for the peoples. <laughs> in a funny way, that's what I do in my basement. I enter into that, and with... Dad authority preside as judge over my toddler situation. That basement scenario in some ways is all of world history. I listened once to a long podcast about the fall of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. Basically, it's tracking Rome up to, to Julius Caesar. And it was so in-depth, like, I felt like I got to get to know the men and women who were alive at that time. I got a taste for what it was like to be alive in those centuries and like in any nation's history, it was super messy. If you know anything about the Roman history, it's a messy history. Um, Rome was this decently ordered state, but then there's all this internal infighting, and there's so much literal and figurative backstabbing that things just go really, really haywire. It gets messier and messier. It gets more tangled and more tangled. And what struck me as I listened to it is that by the time Julius Caesar ascends, no one was clean. No one was left untangled. People either were complicit in some betrayal or something, or they were persecuted or dead, or they were both. And I remember having this profound realization that if I were a Roman in 50 BC, 
I would have been complicit, persecuted, or both. Most likely both. There would have been no way to not be politically or ethically entangled in that situation. And then I realized that's just true in life in general, right? The history of Rome is like a bloody historic version of my kids in my basement. But most of those people, think about it, were never vindicated if they were wronged. Just caught in the meat grinder of the Roman Empire and all the atrocities that happened. People who did good or even stood up to it were never vindicated. Justice was never satisfied. History just moved. Because there was no judge presiding over Rome. No one was there to untangle the mess. Who could have untangled it? Who could have had that authority? And this is true for America in 2019, right? Are we not a tangled, complicit mess? I remember watching the Kavanaugh hearings. I wonder if you did. And I remember it physically affected me. All of our divisions and our sins and our teeth were imputed into that controversy. And at least when I was watching it, I felt like you could hear our nation just cracking and unraveling. Republican and Democratic politicians presided over that hearing, but no one was able to untangle the mess because the mess was deeper than two people, right? And regardless of what your political persuasion is, I hope you can agree that we all lost over the past year. No one had the ultimate authority to hook the mess and, and pick it apart, to set things right. Who could have? Who had the moral or political authority to do that? When we say in the creed that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead, we are agreeing with the Bible that he's going to come someday soon and he and he alone is going to be judge over my basement, over all of Roman history, living and dead. That's what that means. Over America. He is the one with the authority to untangle the mess, and he will untangle it. Amen? He will divide right from wrong. He will reward good. It's very clear in the scriptures. He will punish evil. He will make things right. Hallelujah. And the Bible teaches us, it's really fascinating, that this happens on a macro and a micro scale. So the prophets all the time, Jesus himself as well, talk about how nations will be judged, whole nations. Then he talks about how cities will be judged accordingly. Then he talks about how even individual congregations will be judged. He talks about that in the book of Revelation. But it also happens on a micro scale to us individually, both living and dead. And I think this is easy for us to grasp because we try to play this Jesus role a lot that has been reserved for Jesus. Have you noticed how consumed our culture is with labeling people as good or bad? This is not a new thing, but we do it very well because of the internet. It's almost like there's this collective stamp of like approved and disapproved. And every time somebody in the public eye does something that's not perfect, it's like we all have to get together to decide, do they get the disqualified stamp or are they allowed to still be okay? Are they a bad guy or a good guy? And we do this with the dead. Have you noticed this? 
our, uh, every area of culture right now is going through this ethical purging process. So we're digging up politicians and painters and musicians and military people and singers and stuff, and we're kind of deciding, how do we want to stamp these people? Are they good guys or bad guys? Uh, I feel like every week there's a new flavor of the week in terms of a person that we're figuring this out on. The one this week that I read about in the New York Times is Paul Gauguin, who's a famous uh, painter. And it's a very heated debate, and it will be very heated until there's another person that we're deciding on it for. And you know what that's called? Judgment. That's judgment. But who has the authority to make that decision? Journalists? Pastors? Politicians? Actors? Jesus has very choice words to say about that judgment impulse in us, the stamp impulse. Yes, hear me, we must call out wickedness when we see it and work towards a virtuous society. We must, Jesus asks us to. But Jesus says, be really careful the degree that you feel your hand reaching for the stamp of disapproval, bad or good. I love King James, judge not lest ye be judged. God has given the authority to judge each of us to one person. And who is that? Jesus. He has the authority. Let's hear the scriptures on this. Open up your Bible or your bulletin uh, to Acts. It's our New Testament reading that Matthew read. These are two different sermons. One's the one that preacher, preacher, Peter preached. That actually worked, preacher. Peter preached to Cornelius, who was a Gentile. The other one is Paul preaching to a bunch of folks in Athens. So in Acts 10, verse 42, in that first chunk, look at verse 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Now look at the second section in Acts 17, verse 30. The times of ignorance got overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And that's Jesus. Let me just give you two more that aren't in your bulletin. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Hebrews 9, it is appointed for men and women to die once, and after that comes judgment. So what are we waiting for when we wait for Jesus to come and judge the living and the dead? We're waiting for him to come and put things right. Historically, individually, corporately, this is like a part of the good news of Jesus. And this is actually part of the gospel. This is like a part of the good news of Jesus that we see people preaching. Christ came. He died for the forgiveness of sins. He was raised. He will come again. That's why we say we proclaim the mystery of faith every week. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Our church, if you're visiting this morning, we preach through the gospel or the, the book of Acts. Uh, over the past year, and I was so convicted by how much the apostles talk about this and how little I talk about this. This is what we're waiting for. And I wonder if you might be asking, just before we move on to the second question, the million-dollar question, which is, how in the world do you know that Jesus is going to come do that? How do you know that he's the one who has the authority to do it? How do you know he even exists and he's coming back? 
how is this not just some crazy religious delusion? Look at your Acts reading real quick. This is so good, and it's really important. Acts 17, verse 31. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by what? Raising him from the dead. The resurrection is not only the vindication of his first coming, proof that sins are really forgiven on the cross. It's also our bedrock of confidence for no, he is coming again because the tomb is empty. Amen? Okay. Second question. What does it look like to wait for the coming of Jesus? In other words, how does the Bible teach us to react or feel about this? That's a really important question. Terror, joy, hope, love. There's so many different emotions that we could feel about that. And there's a lot of things that come out of the scriptures, but I just want to pull two, and in the providence of the Holy Spirit, they both begin with an R because the Holy Spirit speaks in literation. I'm just kidding. That was a joke. I know we're talking about judgment. You can loosen up a little bit. First, two things with an R, repentance. Repentance. There's a proper godly fear and conviction you should feel when you hear that Jesus is going to step into your basement and judge, right? If you just listen to everything I just said and there's not a little bit of a gulp, what? Say that again? Then either you're not listening or you feel like you're completely 100% okay and above reproach. And that's where our first response in contemplating Jesus' coming is one of repentance Godly conviction leads us to ask, what then shall I do? Oh my gosh, what do I do about this? Which is exactly what people do throughout the Bible when they hear this. Some of you might remember this from last year if you were with us, but the church calendar always begins with the gospel reading about Jesus promising his second coming, like today. And then usually in Advent 2 and 3, we get John the Baptist, which is really unique because John uh, typically doesn't fit inside our, our Christmas box, you know? It's not like you're looking at your nativity and it's like there's Joseph and there's Mary and this weird guy in animal skins with a beard. There's John, you know? Like, he doesn't fit well into the way we think about Christmas. But do you remember John's message? This is why John always shows up in Advent. John says before the, the Jordan, the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Repent. He's preparing the way of the Lord, of the coming of the Lord by calling the people to repentance. And that's why John is a part of this because he's, he's preaching repentance. And that's why the people say, what then shall we do? They say that to John before Jesus comes. But this is where the gospel comes in because the judgment of Jesus is never preached apart from the forgiveness of Jesus. Let me say that one more time because it's important you hear it. The judgment of Jesus, his second coming, is never preached apart from the forgiveness of Jesus, which is why I'm fascinated in Luke, after John is eating locusts and being crazy in the wilderness and preaching repentance, he leaves and the, and the gospel says, and after he had preached all this good news, it's like, what? That was good news? It is, because he's preaching forgiveness. Jesus is coming to set the record straight, and that's a beautiful thing, but even better, he can forgive you of everything right now. That's the gospel. Look with me in Acts 10 one more time. This is uh, Peter's sermon to Cornelius. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. 
I love it. He's saying, like, that's the first thing I, I have to say. That's what I've been sent to say by Jesus is that he's coming back to judge. But then verse 43, and to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Our entire faith is based on the fact that God is both just and merciful. I love how Romans says, just and justifier. That he both will judge the living and the dead and that he has made a way for us, messy and tangled as we are, to stand in the judgment. And we can stand because of the blood of Jesus, because of his cross. Jesus bore our judgment. He drank the cup that we might be forgiven. And that's good news. Amen? If you're here this morning and you're, you're hearing this and you're new to Christianity and you've not really thought about these things before or heard that Jesus has died and risen from the dead and is coming to judge the living and the dead, um, you might be asking, what then shall I do? I, wanna, I, want you to encourage, I wanna encourage you to do what John and Peter said. Repent of your sins. Turn from your sins and turn to Jesus to lay hold of the forgiveness in his name. Uh, there's a couple ways you can take an action on that. You can pray with me. There'll be prayer ministers in the back, and I haven't talked to them about this yet, but they would love to pray with you a prayer of repentance. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Jesus is offering you forgiveness. So what does it look like to wait for the judgment of Jesus? First, we repent. And second, the scriptures are crystal clear. Here's the second R word. We rejoice. Rejoice. Because of the gospel, waiting for the coming judgment of Jesus is to be characterized by a right, palpable, unspeakable joy. This is where we get to our psalm. I promise that we were going to be studying a psalm today. Everything I've said leads up to this because the psalm, Psalm 96, is somebody writing about the coming judgment of God. Except his tone and his emotions might be different than what you'd think. So I want to work through this psalm one more time. So everybody go to your psalm page. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 96. Verse 1, oh, sing unto the Lord a new song. Sing unto the Lord, all the whole earth. Sing unto the Lord and praise his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his honor to the nations and his wonders to all peoples. For the Lord is great and highly to be praised. He's more to be feared than all gods. As for all the gods of the nations, they're but idols. But it is the Lord who made the heavens. Glory and majesty are before him. Power and honor are in his sanctuary. Ascribe unto the Lord, O you families of the peoples, ascribe unto the Lord worship and power. Ascribe unto the Lord the honor due unto his name. Bring offerings and come into his courts. O worship the Lord and the beauty of holiness. Let the whole earth stand in awe of him. Just to pause for a second, this guy's super excited. There was no punctuation, uh, like exclamation points in the Hebrew Bible really, but if it was written today, there would be exclamation points all over this if this was a text message, Right? He's filled with this desire to worship and sing. He is pumped. Why is he pumped? Look at verse 10. Tell it among the nations, the Lord is king. It is he who has made the world so firm that it can't be moved, and he shall judge the peoples righteously. Let the heavens rejoice 
Let the earth be glad. Let the sea make a noise and all that is therein. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it. Then shall all the trees of the wood rejoice before the Lord. I love how the Psalms say, clap their hands sometimes. So the forest at this point is singing. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth and with righteousness to judge the world and the peoples with his truth. A great theme in scripture is that physical, reaction, physical creation reacts to God. It reacts to Jesus. You get these hilarious images uh, in the Old Testament of hills skipping like rams and mountains like melting into wax and all this stuff. But the funny thing is, it actually happens. When Jesus was born, what happened? The stars and astrology like literally bent and pointed to the coming Messiah. When Jesus dies on the cross, what happened? Think about it. Everything changes. There's a physical reaction of the world to Jesus' death. The skies darken. The earth cracks. When he rises from the dead, what happens? There's an earthquake. Every time Jesus comes, physical, reaction, physical creation reacts to it. And both Jesus and this psalm and all the other psalms promise that when he comes a second time, it'll be the same thing. The earth is going to literally respond and bend to the coming of its creator. The heavens will rejoice. That's up there. So all the stars are going to shout for joy. I love how Job says, were you there when the, the morning stars sang and the sons of God all shouted for joy? They're going to sing again. It says the earth will be glad. The sea will roar. It's going to make a noise. The fields and all the trees are going to start singing like we said. It's like the whole world is going to be waking up and starting to join this beautiful chorus. And why? For he comes for he comes to judge the earth. And why is that worth singing about? Why would you start a party when that is about to happen? Again, look at the last verse. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with his truth. All of creation is going to rejoice because Jesus is the righteous and the faithful and the true and the equal judge. So it's worth singing about. There's a proper fear and conviction response, like I said, we should have when we hear about the judgment that should lead us to repentance and forgiveness. There are loads of times in scriptures where the coming judgment of God is spoken of in very foreboding terms. Do not ignore it. Don't belittle it. Don't harden your heart to it. Don't think you can stand in the judgment apart from Christ. But those passages are married in the Bible to passages like these, where the people of God rejoice at the coming of God. They exult that he's coming as judge. And that's because this is what we truly want. This is what we are waiting for. Amen? You don't want a world where there's no judgment. You do not want that. You do not want a basement with multiple small children and no wise parents right? You don't want all the evil, all the wickedness, all the profound abuse in this world to go unchecked. You don't want the good to go unseen. You do not want the world to stay tangled as it is. If there was no coming judgment, it would mean all good and evil would just evaporate like mist. It would mean that what we do now doesn't matter. And if you want a taste of that, I can recommend some good existential literature for you to read which is thinking about life on the basis of that premise. 
It's not attractive. The fact that there will be a judge, someone to preside over the mess and set things right is a beautiful reality. It's a comfort. It's a consolation. That's why the main cry of the people of God in the Bible is not, Lord, don't come and judge, but what is it? How long, O Lord? The picture in the end of Revelation you get is of the persecuted, suffering masses before the throne of God saying, when, when are you going to come and make things right? But you also don't want the judge to be anyone else but Jesus. You don't want it to be any religious or political figure or cultural figure. You don't want it to be you or me. No one has the authority or the power or the wisdom, but Jesus does. And the Father has handed all authority over to the Son. He is the one. And as John says, he's full of grace and truth. Jesus coming as judge is good news because Jesus is good. He's the most merciful, right? The most wise, the most powerful, the most beautiful. He suffered more at the expense of this world than any of us have. He's the one who's gone to hell and back. He's the one who forgave his executioner for killing him unjustly. He's the one who's truly lived in your shoes and understands. He's the one who loves you. And therefore, to anticipate and expect the coming of Jesus is to be filled with joy and longing. It's to join the forest and the rivers and the fields, to clap your hands and rejoice that Jesus is coming to judge the living and the dead. It's being able to join all that great chorus of the saints and those in Scripture to say, how long, O Lord Jesus? Come, Lord Jesus. That's the cry of Advent. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.